0: Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. Courage. What does it take to build courage as a habit? And how do you incorporate courage into business building, which can be really hard? Also, how long does it actually take to grow a business? Today's interview is so great. We go behind the scenes of building a business with somebody who started her private practice on the side of her corporate job, and she grew it for as long as she could, and then she left her corporate gig, the salary. She scaled it up. She built a training program, and she's now in the sixth year of running her annual certification program, and she specializes in working with people on developing a key habit, the courage habit. Listen in today as we talk to Kate Swoboda of Your Courageous Life. We talk about what fear triggers us to do and how to work around fear, where exactly you rebuild your habits or retrain yourself and how to do it, the four different actions you can take to develop the courage muscle. So there's four really clear, specific actions you can take, which is great. If you don't know what to do, you can start with these four. She shares her journey in becoming a parent and how challenging it was for her and how much she loves her kiddo. And we dive deep into her business journey, how she built it over time, how she grew it, and how she let it grow alongside her year over year. I love talking to entrepreneurs who have been in the game for 10, 12, 15 years, so we can really dig into everything that they've learned. And she shares so much wisdom with us, so I know you will love it. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. There is so much to learn when it comes to pregnancy and parenting. You all know that I'm a huge fan of learning from experts and gathering your tribe of people to learn from. So one of the ones I highly recommend is called Alavita Nutrition. They are the sponsor of this episode, and they are a tremendous resource when it comes to food and health and wellness. Anna and Megan started the company, and they are registered dietitians and entrepreneurs, and they want to make eating good food and understanding nutrition easier for busy moms. I have been stalking their blog and reading all of the recipes, and now it makes a lot more sense why I crave a bazillion eggs and green juice during my pregnancy, because I understand the science behind it. If you want to learn more about nutrition and how to take care of your body before you're pregnant and while you're growing a baby and afterwards, go check them out at Alavida Nutrition. Also, for Startup Pregnant listeners, if you use the code Startup Pregnant, you get 20% off of their self-paced programs or their nutrition consultations. I have all the links in the show notes so you can check them out. And thank you, Alavita Nutrition, for being the sponsor of this episode. All right, everyone. I am so excited to have Kate Swoboda join us on the show today. Kate, welcome to the show. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for having me. So I have so many questions for you. I have so many questions for everybody I interview. That's how the show works. (laughs) The First one I want to ask you Can you
1: tell me what time you woke up this morning and what your morning was like? Mm, I woke up at 730. My husband actually was waking me up. He's that fabled fantasy husband who gets up earlier and starts breakfast and everything, which is pretty amazing. Let's see. Got up. My kiddo was still lazing away in her bed. And I went over and was like, hey, baby and got her to walk out to the couch with me. We snuggled and watched dad finish up breakfast. We all had breakfast together as a family. I had a lot of coffee and then she headed out to preschool. He dropped her off and then I got started on my workday. What and, time did you start on your workday? Well, before I start on my workday, I try to have a little like, mental buffer. So usually she's out the door around 8:30, 8:45, and I don't officially officially start my work day until usually around 9:30, if not a little bit later. And that's just more recent cuz with the book coming out, there's just a lot more to do. If I had less to do, I would actually spend the entire morning just kind of like slowing down, reading, writing, like creating that creative space that really at least for me can only happen when I have some time that's unstructured. Today I got started about nine thirty and before then though I was taking a little bit of buffer time just to like read some books, chill out for a bit, catch up on the news, which is always a little bit of a heartbreak. And then I got started on my day. And it's usually checking in with email first. I had a to do list that I had written out last night because I was having some trouble falling asleep and I was like, all right, I need to sit down, write out my to do list because I keep thinking of all these things I need to do. Wrote out my list last night, had it ready, got started. And do you work from home, it sounds like, or is there an office you go to? I have a home office. So I have a lovely room that is hilarious. It's a white couch, white curtains, white desk, white topped coffee table, white side table, and a kind of creamy carpet. When people tour the house, I'll jokingly call it, it's the sanitarium. (laughs) 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 But yeah, I have a home office. It's like a complete mess most of the time. I hang in here and there's like a vibe about the office. It's just kind of like this is your like creative space, creative energetic space. So I don't have a commute, which was in becoming self-employed was like a goal. <laughs> I don't ever want to have a commute again. Mm-hmm. Oh, And you have
0: been self-employed for a while now because you started your business in 2006. So it's been... 12-ish years. Can you take us way back and talk about the early days? Why did you start your business and what is
1: your business? Mm, okay. The fullest journey is that I, you know, built my business alongside my salaried employment. So I didn't fully let go of salaried employment until 2014. And I could have let go as early as 2012, but I held on because I needed the health insurance. So I started in 2006 and I became a life coach. Your garden variety. I just want to help people life coach, you know, bright faith, big dream. I just want to help people and I love this work. Let's become a life coach. And at the time, I had so little confidence in my ability to run a business. I mean, I just kind of thought, oh, well, like I don't know anything about business. How could I run a business or anything? So it was very like I had been. Doing personal blogging for a while, and then I put out feelers. I'm also taking on coaching clients. and just if anyone came and said, "I'd like to coach with you, great. And if not, then no worries. you know like I didn't really put effort behind it. And then in 2010, that's when I, as I say, got serious about it, where I actually went, okay, like like what is it to market <laughs> yourself? What does that actually involve? And what does that look like? And what are some things I need to be doing? So I started learning about marketing still doing the salary job thing although I tried a couple times to like just take sabbaticals from work to see if I could make a go of it working for myself but it was always too soon of a jump I needed the cushion of income to really build my business so I started running group coaching courses and by that time I had really realized like what I'm really interested in is not coaching as How do we come up with like a list of things to do and tick the things off the list? And then we call that successful coaching, which is a discipline of the coaching industry and or a branch, I guess I'll say. And for some people is very effective and helpful. But I was more interested in something process driven, like what's our way of being when we're really afraid? And it fascinates me that my way of being and so many other people I've met, like my way of being and what I embody when I'm really stuck in fear is so different <laughs> than when I'm not. You know, I'm the same person on a fundamental level, but there's this really big shift. And I just got really interested in what that process is like. And that's when in 2010, it was like, what I'm really all about is how we practice courage. And that's when I began, as I describe it, like, my business being like an octopus with many tentacles, you know, that's when it was like, okay, so there's one-on-one sessions, there's group coaching classes that I offer on different topics. There's digital programs. There's somebody else having me come talk for their group and teach something either personal growth related or otherwise to their group. And that's where it began to build. And then in 2013, that's when I began researching the coaching industry because I wanted to start a coach training program. I had been doing business consults with other coaches who were saying, I'm having trouble getting my business going and I'm trying to figure out why that is. And I would talk to people and I'd realize a lot of it actually came down to training, that marketing problems were present, but there were other things that really needed like a difference in training. And I think I also, around that time, Facebook ads were coming out and I didn't like the way I saw or what I perceived as the coaching industry going, which is more advice-giving, more goal-driven, less process-driven. And I keep using the word process because it's clearly really important to me. That's when I developed my coach training program. And that has just been a joy and a delight for the last many, many years because I get to do the one-on-one coaching. I get to do the facilitation and the curriculum design, which I totally geek out on and think is so fantastic. You know, see and be in community with a really amazing cohort every year. And then that's just like total joy as well.
0: I think you're hitting on something really interesting here. And it's something I saw on your website before we chatted, which is it's kind of the differentiation between the freelancer and the entrepreneur. It's one thing to have a skill or to be really good at something, at helping other people, for example, in life coaching. But the journey of building a business is a different skill entirely. And mm-hmm. that, I mean, speaking from personal experiences, has been such a challenge, like understanding the scope of business building and systems implementation and management and leadership, all of those pieces. Can you talk about your own like business learning curve? What was your mm-hmm. learning curve like? What did you struggle with in building a business? What do you wish you had known earlier?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing I'd say is that I've never been successful building a business strategically. I have only ever been successful building my business when I have come at it from the perspective of, I guess the thought that comes through my head is like, how is this like your life? So it's like, if I go, I need to figure out how to get my site SEO optimized. I need an outcome. You know, like that is just toil and misery. But if I turn it into, okay, how's this like your life? Like there's this thing you don't know how to do yet. You want to know how to do it. You feel like you're really incompetent at doing it. (laughs) How do I get into the like, okay, this isn't just about getting the site SEO optimized. This is about looking at a challenge and going, it's a pathway to what I want. And if I want this thing, which is of course to grow my business, Then how do I look at the places where I go, you're not enough. You don't know how to do this. You feel really stupid or where I want to get angry at the technology because, you know, nine times out of 10, it's always the human error. It's not actually the technology. I just like to blame the technology when I'm (laughs) mad. How do I want to give up? How do I go? It's too much work. And then also, how do I engage with this as like a creative process? I mean, with search engine optimization, this going to sound super cheesy, but like, how do I actually come up with keywords that I'm going, man, if somebody typed this into Google and they were going, I'm feeling totally lost and confused, this is where I would hope they would end up on my site to get a little love, to get a little support, to stop feeling so lost and confused. So if I just go, how do I figure out the SEO keywords with the right ranking then I'm either robotic or I'm unhappy. But when I go, how do I make this creative? How do I make this something I can sort of use as like my warrior training for who I am in the rest of my life as well? The whole thing completely flips. And so like the struggle of my business has always been the tension between those two places. Because of Mm. course, I want the metric, right? Like, I have a book coming out right now. Of course, I want the metric of like sales and attention and like it to open doors for my career and, 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 and. And there's that tension. But if I get pulled too far into that pole, then it just gets really gross and rigid. And it's not anything I want to embody. So then it's the tension of coming into the other place, which is It's an open adventure. Who the hell knows where this is going to go? Some door could open that I'm not even planning strategically for. And how great would that be? And, 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 you know, and who am I going to be? I think the greatest gift I've been given along this journey so far is the metaphor that my coach, Leanne Raymond, gave me about, and this is so startup pregnant relevant, birthing a book being like birthing a baby. And it's like you create it, you grow it, you shape it. You put it out into the world and then it has a life of its own that you have no control over on some level. You have a little control, but not ultimately. And I just have found that metaphor to be so great because, like, you know, here I am and book is out, but like I would definitely say the last three months have been very third trimester for me where I'm very, you know, I remember being in my third trimester and just being like, okay, when's the baby going to be here? Can we like, get this show on the road here? Right. Like, <laughs> There's a lot of waiting and people telling me how it's going to be. And and then at the same time, like, oh, Jesus, wait, the baby's almost here. I don't have enough time. I need more. <laughs> it, it's just been such a gift of a metaphor. It's been so apt.
0: Oh, that's great. And it's so true, too, because it's not like the birth of the book arrives And then there's no work afterwards. Right, right, right. Like, like, (laughs) oh, now it's easy. It's like, no, now you have a newborn and you have all this inbound stuff coming your way and like all the work of marketing and ongoing marketing and launching and telling the story and connecting. Yeah, I love that. I was just talking to somebody else, a man friend of mine who his wife had two babies. And he said, each time my wife had a baby, I wanted to birth something too. And I was really into this as a thing. And I needed to have my own creative project. And I was like, yes, this is for all of us. Like Whether or not we have babies or not, if we're creative people birthing different things in the world. And the cycle is pretty on point. There's a postpartum period for it doesn't matter what project you have. There's a hangover for each project, at least for me. (laughs)
1: Yeah. No, I I'm a believer. I'm picking up what you're putting down, sister.
0: <laughs> I think this is so interesting too that you have taken such a conscious effort to use the metrics and use goal setting, but also have a like a high level of awareness that it's not enough. Like it doesn't capture the full picture. And that is what led you to launch an entirely new coaching certification program. Can you tell us what that looks like both for people who want to join it and how it runs, but also like, how did you decide to build this thing? What was the impetus
1: mm-hmm. there and what surprised you in building it? Oh, like so many questions. So if I miss one of the pieces, <laughs> I'll repeat just, them. just, yeah, pull I just, me just back asked you in. like 14 questions. <laughs> um, so, okay. Well, first of all, let me just say, like when I first realized I want to do a coach certification program, I mean... I didn't even act on it at first because the voice of fear. You know, I talk a lot about fear. And for your audience, maybe they haven't heard of me before. I think fearless, like no fear whatsoever, I think it's BS. I don't think it exists. I think that anyone who tries to sell you'll be fearless if you do my program or my process or read my book or whatever is lying to you. I think that we can learn how to see fear as part of a process. And it's helpful even to not pathologize fear, to not make it wrong for existing. It's a different approach, different orientation to fear. I'm not trying to get rid of it. I still experienced fear and I experienced it then, even with what I I knew then. And so what originally came up is who the hell do you think you are to certify people as professional life coaches? Like, who's going to take you seriously with this? Who's going to like, come on, please. So I didn't even act on it right away. And this is, I think, one of the hacks I've learned To kind of like let my fear have some space because my fear didn't want to like take serious action, but to also like not get totally stuck in not taking any action whatsoever, which is I just started like doing the like kind of idea bucket method, you know, like the little scraps of paper and, you know, you're reading some book and then it's like, oh, this could be tied to this. Oh, wouldn't it be cool if and then all the pieces started to come together I began talking to more people about it. And thankfully, I talked to the right people because they were people who said, Oh, wow, that would be so great. You'd be so good at this. I remember getting on the phone with Molly Mayhar of StrataJoy. And I was trying to figure out like what format, what structure would I want this coach training to take place? And I asked her about a group coaching program that she ran. And she said, We always kick off with an in-person retreat and it's really great for bonding the group. So I was like, oh, that's what I'll do. (laughs) And it has been wonderful to have that, to not just have it be completely remote. So all these pieces began coming together. And one of the things that was also important is it's like this, again, I'm talking about these poles and the stretching between the two poles. There's kind of this like super regimented, very ICF core competencies Make sure you hit these, gotta have a high level of integrity and rigor. And that exists within me. So I wanted that in our coach training program. I don't think it's right that there are people online who are like, watch a couple videos and become certified over the weekend. You know, these are human beings you're gonna be working with. Like we need to have some integrity here. But then there's also this part of me that goes, like, I see coaching as craft. And it's spontaneous and it's intuitive. And that's the more woo end of things. Like, there's no way. Like, you can tell me that the only good coaches are those who follow this tick box of items. (laughs) No, 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 no. Like, spontaneous, open, creative coaching has its place, too. So, I really began looking at it as like, how do we marry the two together? How do we almost have a program where it's like there are these waves where there's one week where we set up things in a really highly strategic student learning outcome driven kind of a way? And then, how do we have weeks where it's open and it's expansive and we are completely putting people in an environment where they don't know what to expect next so that they can get curious about who they become when they don't know what to expect next? And how do we make it? personal development alongside the craft. Because great coaches, I do think, work on themselves and they go, what are my hidden spots where I, I don't see the thing that's right before me? You know, you can only take a client, I think, as far as you yourself are willing to go. So how do we combine that? And I have a background in facilitation. And in fact, I also have a facilitation program where I teach facilitation and curriculum development. And so that was something that I was able to bring to the process. I'll pause there to pull me back in. What's the ne- <laughs> the next piece that I need to make sure I hit on? I feel like when I talk about the CLCC, I'm like a mom who has a bunch of baby pictures and I keep going on and on and on <laughs> about like that my child drew a circle or something. <laughs> and like you have to kind of stop me and like get me focused again. Because <laughs> I just oh, love, I love it so all much. the
0: details cuz yeah. I love hearing about like how people think about the curriculum and what goes into it because Everybody who is building a business, there's so much depth and thought that goes into it. And I love Mm -hmm. hearing about the program. So how long is it and how many people are there?
1: And you said now this is your fifth year. Am I catching it right? Yeah, 2019 is going to be our sixth year. So we're in the middle of our fifth year right now as we're recording this. And 2019 is going to be our sixth year. So, you know, average class is around 30 people. We have an application process. We really kind of mirror it the way like a college acceptance would be in some ways. Like I have a personal phone call with every single person who joins. We don't accept every application. I know that applications in some group programs are actually like a gimmick to get the customer to invest more time to create some kind of sunk cost bias where you've put so much time into the application process that it creates a a thing for the person applying of like they're desperate to get in. We're not doing that. We're like literally wanting to know there's a question on the application. Resistance is going to come up for you. How do you handle that? Because Mm -hmm. if there's somebody who says, you know, I feel like when resistance comes up for me, it's going to be the program's job to teach me five ways to not be resistant. It's like we can teach that to you. But are you willing to take the self-responsibility to actually go I'm in my resistance right now, and I need to take the action that is counter to what my resistance tells me to do. So we're really screening each application, and the greatest number of people we would ever accept to the program is 60. And we also, importantly, I think, maintain a really great student-teacher ratio. It's not just me running the program. I bring on other experienced, brilliant, incredible people who help me to co-lead the program. And I want people to get personal attention and feedback on their coaching. And and I want them to get exposure to people other than me because we're not trying to create Kate bots here. We're trying to create like you tapping into who you want to be as a coach.
0: That makes so much sense. And so how long does the program take after the in-person
1: component? How much longer is it and what does it look like? It runs January through October every year. For some people, certification might run into November because we also get onto a one-on-one phone call with every single person who's graduating. We model our certification standards after ICF certification standards. So they require a 30-minute call of the person coaching and a self-assessment. We do the same thing. We get on the phone with every single graduate to give them feedback after we listen to their call and say, here's, you know, what we thought and strengths and weaknesses. And we offer both. So some people might not have their appointment with us to, you know, review everything until, you know, early November. But most people we work with were finalizing certification by October. And then what did
0: it look like to get accreditation or certification? Like what kind of steps did you go through
1: there? So we didn't go through ICF accreditation and certification. And it's really funny to me because I see programs that put the ICF thing on their site. So it looks like all official. But what they're not disclosing is that they got a continuing education credential from the ICF. Mm. So they like just said to the ICF, like, hey, you know, I don't know, 20 hours of coaching. Will you give your stamp of approval? That's not the ICF saying, you know, from beginning all the way to the end, this certification gets an accreditation through us. So, you know, we haven't gone that route. And the big reason that we haven't gone that route, well, there are two. One is that in my own practice, I've never needed ICF certification. I've never been asked about it. I've never had a client tell me they thought it was important. And two, for me to get the program ICF accredited, I would have to go back, start over with Training <laughs> and then hire one of their coaches to like coach me over the 10 required ICF topics and like pay thousands of dollars for that process. A coach who might have less experience than me, even. It just feels like every time I've thought about doing it, it's not that I knock the ICF. Every time I've thought about doing it, what I authentically come back to is that that would just be I dotting and T crossing for me. It wouldn't actually make me a better coach. It wouldn't actually mean that I could deliver more. It would be paying for a piece of paper to like have a credential to show someone to prove myself. And I would rather put that effort and time and money into my own education on topics that interest me rather than pre-programmed coaching from a designated ICF coach and into the program and into the trainees and into delivering more value. You Mm -hmm. know, value doesn't come in a piece of paper. That says, we stamped you as valued. Value comes in how you show up and your presence. And I think, too, I'm just past the point of my life. I was in a job before all of this where I was constantly trying to prove myself. And that move for me right now would just be trying to prove myself. That's
0: how I feel sometimes about getting an MBA. I've thought about it a lot. And Mm -hmm. every time I dig in and really ask the question, I look at the cost benefit and what's better, starting a business or getting the MBA. And when I drill down a little bit further, I say, okay, there's certainly areas where I want to improve my knowledge, Mm -hmm. particularly when it comes to like accounting and finance, there's different areas where I'm like, I don't know much about that. And I want to learn more. But on the whole, is it a good idea for me to pause my life for two years and go do that thing instead of the thing I'm Mm -hmm. doing now? I'm glad that this came up when I asked you about accreditation. I was just curious more from a business standpoint, just like how much Work a business takes beyond what people see from the outside.
1: But this is so interesting. So, the good news I was going to say is that the ICF doesn't require that you go to one of their accredited programs in order to become ICF certified yourself. So, they have this portfolio path. And I guess this is the third reason why I haven't sought that is that a graduate of our program could totally just apply for ICF certification through the portfolio path. So, Mm. it's like it's not actually a benefit to us. You know, and it's not a benefit to the trainee either, necessarily. They still can get what they want learning through us if they desire ICF certification.
0: That's so interesting. So, are you still doing one on one work with clients or are you doing more business management and the running of the program? What does that look like now in your day to day?
1: I'm doing both. So, I still work one on one with clients. Hashtag can't stop, won't stop. (laughs) (laughs) I end up doing a lot of coaching in the program because people within the program, they're working on themselves. And so on calls and things, I coach people. But I would say that with one on one coaching, the biggest difference is that I don't promote it anymore. You know, it used to be like I've had a spot open up, the same, you know, and it's like I don't promote it anymore. And then as clients come my way, it's a joy and it's wonderful, but it's not something I try to structure my marketing around. So the running of the program becomes the new job, which is really cool. I work with a team, our leadership team this year has nine other people on it besides me. So I mentioned a student teacher ratio before. And like this year, I think we've got like one person in a leadership role per three students in this year's program. (laughs) It's a very high ratio you know, then there's all the stuff, right? There's Divi, the theme, WordPress theme doesn't update and, you know, knocks my fonts out of whack. And I have to go update that plugin or get stuff scheduled into buffer for social media and, you know, try to arrange my book tour and, 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 and.
0: So tell me about layering a book into this too. So now we've gone from 2006 to 2010 to Leaving the corporate gig in 2014 and launching the coaching training program. And now you've got a new book coming out. Tell us about what the book is about and what was the
1: spark that caused you to write it? So, the book is called The Courage Habit and it's about how we can identify, you know, everybody goes, Well, I want to be more courageous. And we usually think of it as like you got to pump yourself up to feel more courageous in your life. So what the book was going to be when I signed the contract ended up being completely different than how it came out. And I can tell that story. So what the book is about is about how we identify fear-based behaviors that have become habitual and then go, okay, here's what the research says are courage-based behaviors that you can make habits to become more resilient, to become more confident, to become more courageous. And this is applicable to everything, to parenting, to so many things. I've rigged habit formation in my favor to get my almost four-year-old to bed. It's been brilliant. It works. What the book was going to be when I first wrote it was actually based on a personal growth and development program, the Courageous Living program that I had self-published. And I got the book deal. And I mean, traditional publishing moves at a glacial pace compared to you know the online world. So it was years ago that I inked the deal. I'm procrastinating on getting my initial (laughs) chapters into my editor and something in me goes, you know, I'll just learn a little bit about habit formation. How does that actually work in the brain? Because we had settled on the title, The Courage Habit, because it was like, okay, great. You know, courage, let's look at it as something that you visit daily. So I started doing this research on habit formation. I have this eureka, holy crap moment of going This actually totally fits with how I've been talking about practicing courage. So I talk about practicing courage as you feel afraid, but you respond to the fear differently. You dive in anyway, and that's what enables you to transform. And habit formation is saying that there's a cue, a routine, and a reward. Like you feel a cue of fear, you go into a particular routine, and a fear-based routine is one like procrastination or self-sabotage to get the reward. And with fear-based routines, it's a temporary reward. Like if I go into perfectionism when I'm really stressed out, I temporarily feel more in control. But it's not a long-term reward. And I was reading this research that said that if you want to change a habit, you, know, you can play with cue and reward. But the most powerful place, says Charles Duhigg in The Power of Habit, to change a habit is at the routine. So, That fit as well with this idea of feel the fear, dive in, transform, like feel the fear instead of practicing the fear-based routine, go for the courage-based routine and develop that so you can get the longer lasting reward that can come out of a courage-based routine. And there were four specific actions or behaviors that the research really showed promoted courage and resilience and self-trust and all that good stuff. It's been really amazing. It's been something I continue to practice myself, even you know, getting a book out into the world or opening the training program because I feel the fear. You're never going to get rid of that part. And it's about do I go into my fear-based routine and strengthen that habit or do I try to interrupt the habit and go into a courage-based habit and really strengthen that as my response?
0: Okay, so you're blowing my mind. And I want to know, do you have specific examples where you've changed a habit or where your clients have changed a habit that you can share?
1: For sure. Okay, so I mean, they're all over the book, like I talk about it, it sounds really theoretical, but actually, there's just so many narratives throughout the whole thing. First, I'll just say before I tell a story that the four specific courage based behaviors are accessing the body, listening without attachment, Reframing limiting stories and reaching out to create community. And so, with all of those, these are the things you want to be doing when you feel afraid, instead of going into perfectionism, people pleasing, self sabotage, pessimism, which is where most of us get stuck in our fear. An example that I know I felt that also points to how this is very process driven and it's not a guru model where I've got it all figured out, it's an intentional practice would be, you know, after I launched my very first course ever, I enrolled like 60 people, which was staggering to me because it was really great to get that many people. I'm not talking about the coach training program. I'm talking about ages ago when I first ran a group coaching course. So I get 60 people and one of them wants a refund within a week and i'm completely spinning about that and then there were some people who like instead of participating in the larger group were like emailing me off to the side to ask questions and talk to them about their process and i'm just going it's supposed to be group coaching and they're not you know being part of the group what am i going to do and i just like basically was freaking out <laughs> and feeling like a real fraud by the way during much of this time so i end up running into a friend of mine who's visiting San Francisco, we're walking around and she had run a number of workshops and she goes, how'd it go? And I'm like, all right, I'll tell her the truth. So I tell her, yeah, here's the thing, you know, this many people didn't really participate in the group. They would email me and I just felt like I didn't know what I was doing. And like one person asked for a refund. And she is basically like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Kate, 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 Kate. Let me get this straight. You had one person out of 60 ask for a refund and you think you failed. Like, <laughs> but this was the thing is that I had not been practicing reaching out and creating community. You know, even for as much as I knew about how we get stuck in fear and how we practice courage, I got stuck in it, which is why we need to reach out and create community. And now it's like, you know, when things come up in my business, in my life, it's like, all right, I need to call my friend Valerie and tell her, you know, I'm spinning right now. Not because she needs to fix me, but just because that's reaching out and creating community. Or I might need some time to just sit down and cry. I actually have a conscious crying practice where I I make time when I notice that I'm getting stressed and it's all pent up to just sit down with a box of tissues and the saddest music I know and Mm. cry. And sometimes it's a laugh session instead, and that's accessing the body it's moving along this continuum, you know, with these four courage promoting behaviors and you can practice just one, but they're most powerful when you do them all. I have absolutely seen in my life that it's like, I don't go as far down the road of spending weeks spinning about how a class or something is doing before I finally get help. Now it's like, okay, I know what this feeling is. I know where it's going to spiral down to if I keep going this way What I need to do is I need to reach out or I need to access the body or I need to listen to what my fear is saying. So it's just a wound. It's just afraid. It wants help. I need to reframe limiting stories like, you know, limiting stories such as if one person asks for a refund, (laughs) you're a failure. (laughs) You know, all those things, they keep coming back in over and over and over. And it's, I think, an ongoing practice.
0: So what you're saying is we have these fear-based habits. We get stuck inside of fear and we usually go to maybe these short-term rewards. Like for me, it would be, oh, I'm just going to check Facebook really quick. Like I'm on my phone and I'm like, oh, I'm so paralyzed by <laughs> like all these emails. So I'm just going to check Facebook. That'll be easier. They create like short-term pleasure, but they don't actually help us create a courage habit. And you're saying that there are four ways to build courage habits and they're predictable and they're known.
1: Yes. Wow.
0: Yes. So I'm going to go over them again, just because I know people listening, like, you know, when you hear something once you're like, wait, 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 I need to repeat this. (laughs) Totally. I know that. (laughs) Accessing the body is the first one. So just like feeling what you're feeling in in your body.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fear is not logical. It's primal. There's a lot of research out there all about how people don't make decisions in their best self-interest logically. They make it based on what they feel. So the fear is huge with that. So accessing the body is
0: a great place to start. So if I'm super stuck or stressed out about something or I feel like I'm not making progress on a launch, actually, the wisest thing I could do might be go to a yoga class or go for a walk.
1: Yes. The intentionality of actually going, OK, I'm trying to process something out here, add something to it. If you just go to yoga, you go through the poses by rote. That's not going to be as effective as actually going like, okay, on every single exhale, I'm going to push that stress right out of my body.
0: Mm. Okay. And the second one, it sounds like your friend actually did this when you reached out, the listening without judgment, like that's something community can be really good for. It's like, what's actually going on? What's in there?
1: Yeah, it's listening without attaching to what the fear says as though the fear is telling the truth or as though your next action should be dictated by the fear. And the metaphor I'll sometimes use is my daughter, all of us as parents, when she has done something repeatedly that I've asked her not to do, we do consequences in our home and it's not like hitting or something, but like a timeout to take a breath and shouldn't like that. And so she'll say things to me like, you're being mean to me, you know, and it's like listening without attachment means I hear her words, but I'm not attaching to them as truth. I don't actually think I'm being mean to her. I think she believes I'm being mean to her. I think that it warrants a conversation. I want to validate the fact that that's the truth of what she feels, but I'm not going to then go, oh God, she thinks I'm being mean. I'd better give her cookies and ice cream for dinner. Like, no, it doesn't work that way. There's listening, but it's not attaching to those words as though they're true. Yeah,
0: that's so interesting because that's actually something my partner and I do, maybe not with that label or that intentionality, but sometimes I just have to say, like, I have to just work through all this crazy stuff that's coming up. And like, can you just hear it and know that it might not even be true, but it's just, it's stuff. And Mm -hmm. then we just kind of work through it. You know, it's like, when you leave, like, I feel like you don't even like us and da-da-da and this is happening and this is happening and obviously you do it on purpose because blah, 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 right? And like, it's something else is happening and it takes all of that processing for us to get to the bottom of it where it might be like, I'm lonely when you're gone because I want more help. It's like, okay, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And just that listening without judgment where he's like, he doesn't respond immediately and say, am not or like R2, because <laughs> it's not a productive conversation. Okay. Well, I know you
1: do Imago and that's our mm. roots in Imago. So yeah, I mean, I've done Imago through couples counseling as well. And I mean, the technical term for what we're talking about is cognitive diffusion, like mm. defusing the power of a voice. Yeah. Anyway.
0: And then the third one is reframing the limiting stories. I don't know if I wrote it down
1: correctly. Yes, okay. yes, you totally got it. And I like to differentiate it's not reciting positive affirmations. This is like an actual tool used in several psychotherapeutic disciplines narrative therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. You're just trying to state the truth, but stretching into more of the positive and being more objective. So, for sure, I'm a mom. I I have a heart. When my daughter says you're being mean to me, it pulls on my heartstrings. Like, I don't like the idea that she thinks I'm being mean in that moment. Yet I also don't like the idea that, you know, the five conversations that I've had very logically and reasonably just have not resulted in the behavior change that needs to happen. Reframing a limiting story is like, you know, instead of going, "You're a mean mom," let's reframe that story. Okay, what's actually going on here? Let me take a breath. That's more accessing the body. Um, I'm hearing the voice of fear that's saying, you're mean, it might be true. Let me check in with myself and my own integrity. Is there an edge to how I'm talking right now because I'm just frustrated and at my limit? Can I dial that back? Is there a support that she needs? Like, is she spinning? Is she not realizing why I've asked for a timeout to take a breath? Maybe that's a communication we need to have. But it's just basically like slowing down and going, okay, do I feel okay with what's actually happening right here in this moment? what would I like to do about it? It can apply to so many things. I'm not enough. Well, you know, objectively speaking, I don't know if I'm quote unquote enough by that metric system that that job or that person is expecting. I could check in and see what they're expecting. I could communicate my own expectations. I could be willing to trust that if I make a mistake, I have the capacity to do it over.
0: That makes so much sense. And then the fourth one is, I think, just so critical that reaching out to community. When I'm in my own head, it's such a hard thing to do, but talking to another human or going to a trusted Facebook group or going to a place where I know that people won't judge me and they'll listen is just can Mm -hmm. really help.
1: Yes. And it's funny, it's the one I resist the most. And that was the hardest chapter for me to write of the whole book because. You know, one of the things I talked about with reaching out and creating community is actually being intentional about how you practice that step because there are people who have courage based values and then there are people who operate from a place of fear. So if you're about to get your startup off the ground and you're pregnant, you know, the person that you want to go talk to about that is not the, I don't know, sister in law who historically every other time you've talked to her about one of your crazy entrepreneurial ideas that's so awesome and she just, it's like if she's going to be like, wow, sounds really good, but are you sure that with being pregnant now it's the right time? I'm just asking. I'm just, you know, it's like that is not the person to go to. Okay. She's asking that question from the fear based place of, you know, you'd probably fail if you did it that way. You want to go to your friend who's like, you know what? I know what you're capable of. You know, I think one way of reaching out and creating community, listening to the Startup Pregnant podcast. Like, this is community right here that's supporting courageous values. Just because you aren't talking to, you know, Sarah in real time doesn't mean that she's not part of a framework of community. And don't get me wrong, you know, real time communication is important and I think is higher on the beneficial scale. But surrounding yourself in what you listen to, what you watch, what you read with other people who are really encouraging The direction that you want to go in, I think, can really bolster that.
0: Right. There's something powerful, and I feel this way about other podcasts too. If you are a mom, or you're thinking about becoming a parent, and you're doing a business journey, not going and asking your, you know, fifty year old father in law for advice. Mm -hmm. Maybe they have amazing advice on things, right? But they might not get where you are right now. And thanks for saying that out loud, because I sometimes there's such warmth in hearing other women's stories and just being like, I'm not alone these women have done things like this, and they're talking about their fears and their insecurities. And I feel less alone because we've got a lot in common. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. I haven't even asked you about your parenting journey yet. We've been able to go, <laughs> go so much it. into yeah, like, business and the book and the courage stuff I really wanted to get to talk to you about. But also you have a kid, you have a four year old.
1: I have an <laughs> almost four year old. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So tell me about how that weaves into all of what we've been talking about. First, let's start. Did you know that you wanted to have kids? And with all of these questions, you know, you can reroute in a new direction if you don't
1: want to answer the intricate details. Tell us about the journey to becoming a parent. Part of my life thought I didn't want to have kids through coaching, counseling, different interventions in life, realized that actually I was just really afraid of having kids and messing them up. Healed a lot from that. Wanted to have a baby. I already knew about an autoimmune diagnosis, but I was reviewing some blood work actually trying to figure out more about the autoimmune diagnosis. My doctor had sent me like in the mail, like a, a list of all the tests that she had run and like what the values were. And I see these three little letters FSH and I Google what that is and what the range is supposed to be. And I oh, that's follicle stimulating hormone. That oh that's supposed to be like under, I remember the top level of that was supposed to be like a 10 and I was at a 12. I was kind of, huh. All right. And it had been like six months since I had had that test run. And I start going back, okay, fertility, what's that like? And had more tests run. And then my FSH had already jumped up to 26, I think it was. And then I was started, you know, Googling infertility research and it's like, oh, infertility clinics won't even take you if you have an FSH over 25. It's considered unethical or they're not supposed to, or that's what I read. And my progesterone was next to nothing. And you have to have progesterone for an egg to implant. And then it was like, oh my God, test results not looking good. I go see a fertility specialist. He recommends after running tests that I do Clomid injections into my abdomen to boost egg production did two cycles of that, went in for the follow-up ultrasound. I'm not even getting follicles. And you got to have a follicle before you can get an egg. So it's looking like it's not going to happen. And that was devastating to me. It was the strangest grief because I was like all over the place with it around the time that I was trying to get pregnant. There was this reality TV star who on her show, she was just constantly getting drunk and using her body like a distillery. And then she got pregnant. And I remember like crying, you know, my husband and just like raging, just like, you know, you treat your body like a trash receptacle. And here I am. And I'm like, plant based exercising, meditating, yoga going, taking all the supplements like this is just not fair. And it was devastating. It was hard. I had a couple months where I was grieving it and processing it. And then I had a session with my coach where, you know, he said, you know, what's it going to look like to have a good life without kids? I said at first, I don't want to answer that question because then that'll be like saying it's true. And he said very gently and kindly, but directly, I am saying it's true. I'm saying that you can look at what it's like to have a good life without kids. So all the infertility stuff had failed. And after that session, I went back to my husband. We started talking and We made this like bucket list of all this cool shit we wanted to do. (laughs) And we started going, how awesome will it be? We won't have kids. We'll be dinks, double income, no kids. And maybe we'll adopt someday, but that just isn't in the cards right now. Right now, we're just like so wrecked from like, I don't know, nine months or something of trying treatments and failing and the grief and all of it that, you know, we're going to like go have fun. So we go have fun. And around that time also... Imagine that. That's when I'm like, I want to start a life coach training program. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> like I think that if I had known that it would be easy to get pregnant, I might have gone, oh, too big. Too big for me to handle. I want to focus on having a baby right now. But once that was taken off the table, it was like, All right, what do I want to do? What are the big bold, you know, things that I say to myself, oh, be realistic about that I want to do. And that was what I wanted to do. So all of 2013 I'm researching, I'm talking with the ICF about what their expectations are for core competencies. I'm talking to master coaches who have been doing this for 20 years before coaching was even known. I'm all the stuff. And I start enrolling people for the coach training program that's going to happen January 2014 and in October of 2013. My husband and I were like, we're going to go out for dinner. We've never done this before. We're going to buy a bottle of champagne. And we're just going to like, we've never done that before. Like, just buy a bottle of champagne because he had helped me launch a website. And I was like, all right. And so I didn't even tell him I was going to take the pregnancy test. But I was like, well, you know, about to go like drink myself under the table tonight intentionally and just be completely crazy because I've never done this. I'm going to take a pregnancy test just in case. I didn't even tell him I was going to do it. And I took it and it was positive. And so I'd gotten pregnant without any medical intervention somehow. And that was the happiest day of my life. I feel emotionally, even thinking about it. I have never in my entire life been happy, like levitating happy for 24 hours straight. That was like crying now. That was it. (laughs) It was just, she's just the most wanted kid in the world.
0: Oh, what's it like being (laughs) her mom? And what's she like today? What was becoming a parent like?
1: I started relying on support a lot more, you know, because I was pregnant when I ran the first iteration of the training program. And I feel so lucky for the support that I received. She is, oh, she's so like uh, feisty and willful, but also incredibly sensitive What's it like parenting her? I mean, she makes a lot of sense to me. That sounds like really weird cuz usually 2 and 3 and 4-year-olds are said to not make a lot of sense, but she makes a lot of sense to me in that I really see that when she knows what the boundaries are, her whole system somatically calms down. So when she doesn't know what the boundary is, I watch she'll ratchet it up to like kind of the next level and push another boundary and another one and another one and another one. And then, you know, the intervention at that point, you know, to say, no, I'm telling you to stop doing that is usually a meltdown. But when I just observe her, it's just like, actually, like, if you just take some time to explain to her, we're not going to do that right now. We will do it later, but we're not going to do it right now. First, we're going to do this. Nine times out of 10, she's awesome. And I'd say the hardest part for me of being her parent right now is that I'm a mother at a time when parenting, especially for moms, is incredibly dogmatic. And I live in Northern California. (laughs) And from what I understand, Berkeley is like ground zero for (laughs) the detonation of the dogmatic parenting bomb. You know, I live in Sonoma County and there's just a lot of dogmatic stuff. And I don't have an issue with anyone raising their kid according to a particular dogma or philosophy. I should say that's a more respectful word. And that's really what I mean. But I definitely have a problem with. If I do cry it out for sleep training, a parent looking me in the eye and saying that that will psychologically damage my child, because yeah. a like just any of that stuff, any time you look a mom in the eye and say she's psychologically damaging her child, you're being a craphead. I don't know if I can curse on this. <laughs> They yeah, crap you men. totally can. And crap uh. I don't know if that's a curse word. <laughs> <laughs> um, a, you're being a jerk. B, you're wrong. You're actually wrong. Like, there's my indignance. Like, you're actually wrong. Like, yes, if you leave children in a playpen to cry constantly, then yes, that will psychologically damage them. But cry it out as a sleep training method is not going to damage a child. And in fact, it was how I was sleep trained and my husband was sleep trained. And it was how my daughter is sleep trained. And she is securely attached. Mm. And she is not psychologically damaged. That type of stuff drives me crazy.
0: That's so funny. What you said too about boundaries for your child, I feel like that applies to all humans. And especially in business, I think one of the trappings of business are one of the hardest things is that managers often aren't very good and they don't create clear boundaries for their employees, which causes a lot of angst and exhaustion and overwhelm. And so it's just the same rule as applied to your kid as it is to adults. So often when I see my
1: little one, I'm like, oh, if I just did this for adults, that would make everyone's lives easier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're in a parenting group together. You know, and I regularly have issues with my daughter's daycare, with things that they tell her or ways that they handle things. It was a cold day this winter. I went to pick her up and she wasn't wearing her coat. And I was like, oh, she's not wearing her coat. And they were like, yeah, we asked her to put it on and she didn't want to. And I'm just sitting here like, are you you (laughs) kidding me? pin her like, down and I, put it on <laughs> like but it's this whole philosophy that like if you override the child's decision you're somehow like destroying her sense of agency and her ability to make her own decisions i'm like that's ridiculous it's it's freaking 50 degrees outside you're the adult make her put on the coat it's like, like shirt like, shoes
0: business again there's another analogy <laughs> like you wouldn't serve somebody without a shirt on in the you know so we could have a whole nother episode about this because there's <laughs> Anytime. a whole time. Like,
1: <laughs> Clearly, a I chapter. have some accessing the body that I need to do about <laughs> this stuff. <laughs> no, no, no.
0: I think there's a whole unwritten chapter of the book that I'm working on. And it's all about cognitive dissonance. And like, it's one of the hardest things to do as a parent is to hold space for multiple perspectives at the same time. It's an area of wisdom as a society that we're not taught how to do very well. Like we get through adolescence, we get through early adulthood, but we don't get to the place where we're able to say, oh, I chose this and you chose that. And both are true. It's a really hard thing to do psychologically. You know, you probably know all of this. And so, and I've watched it in myself, you know, if one person chooses to breastfeed and then someone else formula feeds, there's this thing where you have to make the other person wrong to keep yourself safe. And that's what happens all the time with moms. And the thing is, is like being able to transcend that and being able to say, for you, you didn't choose to sleep train your child because it didn't feel good or it didn't feel right. And you wanted to sleep in the same bed and you wanted to do this thing. As long as it was the right choice for you, right? As long as you're not crying in a corner, like regretting it. If it's the right choice for you, I support you. And... I need you to support me in sleep training my child at 11 weeks old because I had to be a functional human to be the best mom that I could be. And that's really hard for people,
1: for all of us. Yeah. Just so I don't get any like mom police on me. (laughs) If somebody wants to be a co-sleeping, breastfeeding on demand twenty-four-seven, I hate the term compassionate sleep training because it infers that the other methods are not compassionate. I don't like any of that. But if you want to do what is classically called compassionate sleep training, whatever you want to do, if it works for you to help you show up best as a mom. And of course, with your kid, I'm totally in support of it. It's just, you know, the idea that if you make one wrong move as a parent, you'll psychologically damage your child. It's not (laughs) true. And I always like Freakonomics because they had said... That actually what they discovered was that there is no one parenting philosophy that is the best. What they've actually found is that kids turn out better when their parents have any kind of a philosophy whatsoever. Not oh, like I a, love a, that. Yeah. So like not <laughs> one that's like that called something. Like I don't have a philosophy that I call something, you know, no. like there's no name for what I do. But it is the parent thinking What's our routine when there's a meltdown or a need to have an intervention? What's our routine? What's the best way, you know, to sleep train my child? Like as long as you're even thinking with that level of presence, that's all that actually matters.
0: (laughs) I think it's just called consistency, right? Like at
1: the end of the day. Presence or intentionality. Yeah. Oh, I
0: love that you said that. That's so generous too, because There's so many different mamas and there's so many different ways to do this. Like barring a few total outlier exceptions of things that like clearly as a society, we say, actually, no, that's not okay. You're all doing great. You're doing Uh wonderful. You're picking, you're choosing, you're figuring this like crazy hard thing out. And we're all going to choose different things. I feel like I need to whisper this, but like we can be on the same team, you know, (laughs) we can, and we can support each other. Like, ooh. Yeah.
1: Like it's all good. However, someone wants to do it. Yeah, you have said it beautifully. Mm.
0: Thank you so much for being here, for being on the show and doing such a long interview with us. I had so many questions for you. Where can people find
1: out about you and your book and follow you on the Internet? What are your social links and all that? So many places. So Courageous Living Coach Certification is over at tribeclcc.com. Your Courageous Life for personal coaching info and really like reading about courage. I love to write about courage. And so if you want to fill up on that, that's a great place to go. The book is, I love saying this, it's at Amazon and find booksellers everywhere. (laughs) The Courage (laughs) Habit. And I'm going on a tour during the month of May. Maybe I'll be in your city. And then social media, I'm Kate Courageous on Instagram, and I'm Your Courageous Life on Facebook.
0: Mm. Thank you again so much. And everyone listening, all of those links will be on the show notes. You can just click through and you can find out all about her and her book, or maybe you'll see it in a bookstore. Thanks, Kate, for being here. Thanks for having me. And, you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds, and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to StartUpPregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs, and I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.